Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is singer, political, raconteur, troubadour, Billy Bragg. Billy, glad to have you here. Great to be here, Bob. Okay, now you're in here for a three-night stand at the Troubadour, and each night is different material. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's really um, something that I developed over the last uh, 18 months Last time I came through town, through Los Angeles, I was on a fly-play tour, which is basically every day you fly and play. That's harder than it used to be. I mean, partly because I'm over 60 now, so it's harder on me. (laughs) Well, let's just be clear. How old are you? I'm 61. Okay. Uh, But also, the the airlines don't operate the way they used to. I think it's a mixture of um, their corporate attitude, but also the weather is much more inclement than it used to be. And it only takes a storm in the Midwest to knock their schedules out a little bit and you're in danger of losing a gig. I know agents who won't book bands uh, who've played in Nashville a gig the very next day in New York because the possibility of them missing the gig because the flights are cancelled is too high. So when you take all that into account, um, you need to to try and think about a new way of touring. And for me... Um, I got invited to play at the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto a couple of years ago, three-night stand there for their 75th, I think, 75th anniversary. I used to play there a lot in the 80s. And I came up with this idea that the first night I would play my current touring set, which is a, you know, songs right across my career. The tour, the, the, the show I did last time I was in town, the show I would do if I was just doing one night in, in a city. But on the second night, I would only play songs from my first three albums. Just for those who are uninitiated, how many albums do you have? Oh, I don't know, 12, 13. Okay. That's what you count. So yeah. just from the first three first albums? First three, yeah. So that would take me up to about 1986. And then on the third night, the final night, I would only play songs from my second three albums. So that would take me up to 1994. So classic early brag and then the sort of poppy middle period. 
And it's it's kind of interesting for me because um, I think for a lot of younger audiences, it was Mermaid Avenue Project with Wilco that put me onto their radar. When and you did Mermaid yeah, Avenue. Yeah, that was around the turn of the century. Uh, but those earlier records uh, play into the crowd that kind of got into me through college radio. And they're the people who are coming along. And I can tell it's them because the middle night, the first three albums, always sells out first. That was my question. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And the other two eventually sell out. Um, but which, clear- do you, which do you enjoy playing the most? It depends what kind of mood I'm in. I think the, the, um, the first three album stuff is, is exciting. You've got to remember, Bob, my first album was only 17 minutes long. Right. I, I can and have played it as an encore. The whole album. I don't. I don't need to to um, you know rent the Royal Albert Hall and get an orchestra. I can just bash it out if I feel like it. But having said that, um, in the context that we're currently in, the political context, a lot of those songs still resonate. But then the second three records, when I was trying to be laughingly trying to be a pop star, right? Um, they're interesting to kind of reconnect with as well. And then the last of those three albums, William Bloke, is my kind of parenthood record. And it's always nice to go back to that that sort of rebirth. Now, even you, you're you're a third generation, or depending on how we want to count it, you're not the Beatles, you're not a '70s act. But in today's scattered landscape, where it's hard for anybody to get traction, does that affect your motivation to write songs and record songs? It does. It's not so much the traction; it's the cost uh, as a an independent artist behind uh, making a full-blown album that can actually engage in the mainstream on Spotify. Mm-hmm. The last album I made, which was recorded here in Los Angeles at uh, Joe Henry's place, um, you know, I, I recorded that album in a week and then I had to spend a year earning a, a war chest to take it on the road with the band because it, it felt to me that it, if I wanted to step up a level it would need a band but yeah I spent a year I had to wait with the album and spend a year getting together the money because I have no record company behind me I, I do have a record company um, called Cooking Vinyl but I have a kind of uh, licensing deal with them so I pay for the records I pay for the promotion and as a result I own my back catalogue so yeah it's it's a putting out a, a, a full service album is a big uh, a big ask in terms of blood and treasure. Okay, and you can't you can't do it every every couple of years. And now, if you did it with Joe Henry, how much did it cost? Oh, it cost like a proper album. I shouldn't really say how much it cost, but it did cost a, you know a full blown six full figures. Um, yeah. well, close no, to there. Not quite. No, no. Oh, okay, no, so we no. get we get the ballpark. No, no, price not quite. There. But a lot of money for me. I have to say for someone. Of like course, myself. of course, I mean, you I'm, have to make the money. Yeah, Just but putting... you also, Bob, you should know that I've always made a living doing gigs. I've seldom made a huge living selling records. I had some gold rec- records in the UK in the eighties, which is a hundred thousand uh, copies. But really, I'm a, I'm a, my bread and butter is doing gigs. Okay, but. What about the concept of recording with the band and economically going out solo, or do you felt that the only way to do justice to this material was to have a full band? Yeah, the only the only reason to make a full service album is to try and push what you're doing up a notch, to get to slightly larger theaters, to get to slightly broader audience, to try and reach out. There's no point in just going in and just doing whatever you want to do. You've got to, have to think, what do I want to achieve with this record? So. The, getting the band together was part of that. You know, I did a 13-week North American bus tour, which I've never done before. And it's, I, I think I needed to show willing, that I was still willing to to 
at least have a have a crack at, at making so making things now a bit that bigger. that was said and done do you believe you achieved your goal of widening your audience i think i achieved my goal of uh broadening people's perception of who i am and what i do uh working with joe was was really how'd you hook up with joe i've known him for years known him okay. for years i've always been a big fan of his and uh Whenever I bumped into him, he's always said, you know, you could come and make an album in my basement for a week. And uh, towards the um, end of 2011, my mum had passed away in the March of 2011. And I really needed to, not, not for any other reason than just I needed to do something else. And, you know, I'd sort of cleared her house out. I'd sorted out the will and everything, her estate. And I needed to do have a project to do, and my partner suggested. He said, "Why don't you go and see Joe? Make a record with Joe." And that that seemed like a great a great idea to do. So so, but working with Joe kind of brought me a lot closer to the nascent Americana scene because he's got got good connections in that department. So you know, I was the Americana Music Association invited me to Nashville to give an award. Obviously, I had some connection there with the Wilco Woody Guthrie thing. But they invited me to come along, and and I'm you know I'm happy to be part of that. Obviously, it's like my relationship with folk music in England. I'm not of the folk scene. I'm not of Americana, but I am in some ways part of it. Well, today anyway, with everybody, with the evolution of these scenes. Yeah, and I, I, I think Americana is a good place for singer songwriters now. I know a lot of British. Maybe the only place. It possibly, yeah. A lot of British singer songwriters are looking to shift to Nashville or go to Nashville to look for work. So that's a positive thing, I think. Okay, now when you came in, you just said you got off the Kayomo cruise. Talking of Americana. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what that experience was like. Well, I've never been on a cruise ship before, so the idea of going out on one sounds a bit strange. But when you think- okay, just so I know, I have been on a few cruise ships. Did you ha- Did Kayomo have the entire ship? Yeah, just- the entire and- ship. And do you remember what the name of the brand was? You know, Holland America Princess. Yeah, the Norwegian Pearl. We were on the Norwegian. Pearl. Okay. I have actually been on a Norwegian ship, and it was gigantic. It like three- is gi- yeah, like a city block sailing right. around the Caribbean. And um, I, my partner, Juliet, was actually born in the Caribbean. She was born in Trinidad, and she'd never been back there, so she wanted to come. And she's my, also my manager, so that made a lot of sense. And for some reason, which I can't understand, my son suddenly decided he wanted a roadie for me. Okay. So he came as well, and we had the best time. We had a really great time. There's like there must have been about I would say maybe thirty to forty artists, most of them solo artists. Um, the headline acts were Jason Isbell and his uh, is it four hundred unit, his band. Uh, Emmy Lou Harris was there. Keb Mo, uh, Indigo Girls, um, and a lot of other great uh, North American and some European uh, singer songwriters. And about I think there was probably about twelve hundred. Hunters on the boat with us. Okay, so how many days was the cruise? A week. And how many times did you perform? I performed three times solo. I organized a Woody Guthrie event. I saw who else was on the bill, Mary Gauthier, uh, Cassie Chambers, um, Justin Townsville. I kind of knew these guys would be into doing something around Woody. Um, and also being a little bit political, I wanted to kind of make a point of doing something that of that ilk. Um, and I gave a talk about Skiffle because I thought that audience who are into their roots music would be interested to hear. Well, you wrote, a, hear. I did. You wrote yeah. a book about Skiffle. Yeah. Now, I understand this was really a big thing in the UK and it inspired a lot of rock artists, 
but Americans are clueless. Not yeah. that this, not that I haven't heard from English listeners, but relatively briefly, explain what skiffle is. Skiffle is English schoolboys in the 1950s picking up acoustic guitars to play Lead Belly's repertoire. And okay, I don't know if this is too deep because we always hear about uh, Liverpool being a seaport city and a lot of the acts from there getting uh, American records from the seamen. How did these, if you know, these skiffle players find out about Lead Belly? Well, um, in the years after the Second World War, the American government had uh, a department called the U.S. Information Service. And if you went to the U.S. Embassy in Grosvenor Square, there was a department there where you could go and borrow books, American books, so promoting American culture. In the basement, there was a record library which contained the whole of uh, the uh, Library of Congress recordings. So wow. everything from, you know, uh, American... Uh, classical music, you know, Copeland and stuff like that, all the way to um, the Parchment Farm recordings that John Lo uh, Alan Lomax did with Muddy Waters. And so people like Lonnie Donegan, who had a hit with Rock Island Line, Lebley's Rock Island Line, could access those records. And that is how they found them? Or? That is how they found them. I mean, and so they, Lonnie Donegan actually went to the record collection? Lonnie Donegan didn't only go to the record collection. He regularly stole the records because um, – People would go there to borrow the records and they would say, I'm afraid this record has been taken out by <laughs> someone called Tony Donegan. Donegan realized that if he um, if he stole the record, the Americans could just get another copy. You couldn't buy a Lead Belly record in England. So, so he often stole the records. And when I went to the Library of Congress in 2017 to talk about Skiffle, they looked in their records and found a memo which discussed the fact that books and records were being stolen. And the attitude in Washington, D.C. was, well, we're trying to promote American culture. I guess this is part of the process. Let's not worry about it. I guess it's working. They had a more enlightened attitude. Exactly. So here's the, here's the thing. Donegan has a hit with Rock Island Line. He goes, what year was that? 56. Mm -hmm. He goes on the road in late 56 playing vaudeville circuit. So he's doing th two shows a night, six nights a week in major cities. When he plays in Liverpool, George Harrison goes uh, every night of the week. Paul McCartney goes... John Lennon, we don't think he does go. Here's the really significant thing about this. Harrison is 13, McCartney is 14, and Lennon is 16. These are the people that Donegan has the effect on, not people who are buying African-American roots music from sailors in the port. We're talking about kids. In some ways, Skiffle was like the fidget spinner craze that's been in playgrounds over here in, the, in my country in the last five years. It was a school boy phenomenon. What they did, those kids was they picked up the acoustic guitar as a symbol of their difference from their parents' generation. Because they, these kids, John Lennon was born in 1940. He's in the first tranche. They're, they're, the, they're our first teenagers. And until 1954, when uh, uh, Lennon's 14, there was food rationing in my country, including sweets. So John Lennon couldn't go in a sweet shop till he was 14 and buy what he wanted. And a year later, he left school and, you know, was going to college, so he was quite almost an adult before he could buy what he wanted. And it's these kids and their uh, young, uh, their lives being deprived of those things that glom onto African American culture so strongly as something that's theirs. It hasn't been handed down to them by the state or rationed to them by the government and the BBC. So they they learn to play guitars, and so by the time American 
kids, uh, white American kids anyway, learning to play acoustic guitar during the folk revival, which starts in 59, our, our kids, their contemporaries, who are the same age as them, they're already in Hamburg. And the result of this is that when the Beatles break the American charts in January 64, there's a, a huge uh, number of already road-hardened British groups ready to come in behind them. Skiffle is the nursery for the British invasion of America. It's not what they did in, in, in the 50s, these kids. It's what they do in the 60s that counts. So you were born in 57? I was born at peak Skiffle, yeah, 1957. Okay. Were you aware of any of this or you were no. too young? No, no. When I was a kid, I was aware of Donegan, but only in terms of his um, novelty records, like My Old Man's a Dustman and just your, your chewing gum. So what, when did you get turned on to uh, Around music? the time of punk. Because what happened with punk was... All the old guitars that had been there during Skiffle, which were mostly old arch tops, were back in the junk shops. And the old, really early uh, hollow body electric guitars in the UK, which were made by the Hofner Company, they were, they were all, you know, you could buy them for 10 quid. And, and they became kind of part of punk because they were so fabulously retro. And punk had a lot of similarities with um, Skiffle in that it was a do it yourself uh, uh, genre. You know, you made your own music. You, you, in many ways, you were self-empowering because that's the thing that was most revolutionary about Donegan. The message that he took around the country when he when he went out in '56 was: firstly, you don't have to be a trained musician to make music, and secondly, you don't have to be an old African American guy to sing the blues. And this is probably the two most revolutionary ideas ever imparted to British youth. It was just you know because Van Morrison when I interviewed him for the book, told me the problem with Elvis was you couldn't be Elvis if you were British. It's just impossible. But you could be Lonnie Donegan. So Donegan kind of was the catalyst for, for, um, for these kids to, to learn the three chords necessary to play all of Lead Belly's repertoire, which also by coincidence happened to be the three chords necessary to play all of Chuck Berry's repertoire. Okay, and the punk scene, you know, it starts in America with the Ramones in 75, they don't get any traction. When do you become aware of the punk scene? 77, when I go and see the Jam. They were kind of retro band. Where were you, okay, so where were you living at the time? East London, a place called Barking in northeast London, an industrial borough. I was educated, I left school at 16. I was educated to work in the car factory, which has dominated our town. Okay, a little bit, uh, once again, if you leave at 16, what do your parents say about that? Oh, they're cool. My parents had both left school. I have a working-class upbringing. My parents And didn't. so you, do you go to work? What is your gig? you go to work in the car yeah, factory? I'm, no. I de I'm determined not to work in the car factory because we get um, – from school, we go to the car factory every year for careers advice. And when I tell the, the careers officer that I don't want to work for Fords, he says, you've three options, son, in the Army, the Navy, or the Air Force. That's it. So I manage. What happens is just as I leave school, the Port of London is being containerized, uh, And so I get a job with one of the new container companies as a kind of office boy, which is kind of more or less what I wanted, you know. Um, because I, in many ways I kind of picked up the guitar to avoid working in the car factory because they were the main ways to escape, be good at football, good at boxing, or play music. And I wasn't good at the first two. Okay, let's go back a little bit. So if you're turned on to the punk scene and you go to see the with the jam in 77, uh, are you someone who's addicted to the radio before that? Yeah, from the age of about 12, I had a, I had a reel-to-reel tape machine. 
And I used really? To, yeah, I, I sort of a domestic one, domestic okay. reel-to-reel. My parents, I think my parents realised if they bought me a reel-to-reel machine, this is before the days of cassettes, uh, I'd be able to tape stuff from the radio and they wouldn't have to keep spending money buying me records. It's quite clever, really. And did is that what happened? It was better than that. My friends down our street all had elder sisters and their record collections were just brilliant. So very soon I had the entire uh, Simon and Garfunkel catalogue and Motown Chartbusters volumes 3, 4, 5, 6 and 7 on tape. And that provided me with the basis of my knowledge of music and my skill as a songwriter. And when do you start to play? Uh, I start writing songs when I'm about 12, 13, but I can't play until I leave school. Okay, but if you're writing songs, you're writing them on what? Paper. Well, really? You're yeah, just making just get, the melodies yeah, up in your in head? in my head, yeah. And are those Moon June songs? or? Well, I, I wrote a poem um, at school that, uh, when I was 12 that the English teacher was very impressed with, and he wrote to my parents and asked if I copied it from a book, and I hadn't, so... That, that impressed him. And then I got to read it out on a kid's radio program, a local radio program. So it kind of... Gave... Okay, let's go a little bit slower here. Yeah. Was this for an assignment? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and do you remember what the assignment was? Write a poem. Okay, and was this relatively brief or, you know... Three or four verses, yeah. Three or four verses. you remember any of them today? Not really. It was, it was, it was kind of apocalyptic in its nature, I think. That you know, there's no hope for mankind or something like that. Okay, and was it something you dashed off or something you took seriously? This is my chance. It's something I did for homework, Bob. It just worked out really well, and that kind. Of, and then I got the. I failed all my exams except the English. Wait, 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 wait! You get to read on the radio. That must be big. You know, it was a big inspiration. It inspired me. <laughs> it inspired me because I always liked singer songwriters. You know, I started with Paul Simon and graduated very quickly onto Bob Dylan. I had a job in a hardware store on Saturdays, and the hardware store had a record shop in the basement, so I spent all my money on discounted vinyl. And early on, I got Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, the original version, which has all the early stuff on it. Right. And that really, that really inspired me. Okay. So you're writing songs. Are you gathering together with friends to play these songs? Well, this is the thing. The kid next door, when I turn 16, I can hear the kid next door playing his electric guitar through the wall. He's 14. And he's working his way through the Rod Stewart songbook. So I get my, my dad to buy me a, a nylon-strung Spanish guitar. And uh, I get the kid next door to teach me how to play the Rod Although Stewart Although I remember that's how I started in the yeah. nylon string. They're not easy to play. No, they're not. And, it's you know, it's the the just thing of get one hand to do this and the other hand to do something completely different. It's not easy. But as I say, I was learning songs I really loved out of the Rod Stewart songbook because he covered Dylan and he covered, you know, a lot of great songwriters. So I was quite into these songs. And Let's stop here for a second. A lot of punks had a negative attitude towards what came before. Mm. Were you part of that? I was when it got to 1977, yeah. I was a, I was a year zero kid, I, although it wasn't everything. I remember I gave all my Eagles albums to the woman in the post office. <laughs> who, who I liked. She was a good friend. She was into the Eagles, and I used to see her, and I was like, I've got to get rid of these. I, I cut my hair. I got some narrow leg trousers, got rid of my flares. Um, but by this time, I was in a band. I was playing. Okay, but let's go. So, so you're, you hear the electric guitar through the door, through the wall. You buy the nylon guitar. Then what? Well, me and the kid next door, Wiggy, we play in the back room. A friend around the corner who we went to school with was a year older than me. He plays drums. We start, you know, hanging out in 
we become a little gang in my back room. We're predominantly playing the Faces, the Stones, a lot of old rock and roll songs, and writing our own songs as well. Writing a lot of in that songs. stripe, yeah, right? it's like an apprenticeship, you know. Right. I worked out how to how some of the Faces songs were basically guitar riffs that they just attach words to rather than verse chorus things, and I explained this to Wiggy. And he came up with riffs, and I just attach words to them, like so. They sounded like. And where is songs. where is Wiggy today? Uh, he's living still where we grew up, not very far away. His dad still lives in the house next door to the house I grew up in. Although my since my mum passed away, my nephew lives there now, so I see him quite regularly. Okay, so you're playing? Are you playing out, or are you just? No, playing? no, 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 nothing like that. We're 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 waiting to be discovered, Bob. We're trying. We but the, the dream is intact. Yeah. Okay, the you think that forming. I can make it? Is, yeah, the dream is forming. The dream is forming. And it's punk. Well, I saw you move your hands. Does that dream, have something to do with dream. the money? Is that the dream or is that money? It's it, that. It's traction. It's traction. Okay. Some kind of traction for a dream. Dreams need traction. Um, it's punk that makes us realize that the, the way to be in a band is to be in a band, not to wait for someone to come and tell you to be in a band. Go and see The Clash. More than so than The Jam. I don't know why. I think The Clash, the thing about The Clash was they, they did all the things we like to, the Rolling Stones, but they were about the Rolling Stones, but they were our age. So we kind of, some of us more than others. I think I was more into it than the other. Well, that's my question. You're forming this band, and did you quickly realize, wait a second, I have more desire than the other No, people? no, we all had the same desire. We just didn't all have the same haircut. And I think that's always a problem in a band. But what happened was in, in the summer of 77, we decided we all wanted to go on holiday together somewhere where we could stay up and make music all night. We couldn't do that at our parents' house. So we found this um, rehearsal studio, demo studio out in the country, and we went there for a week. Out in the country is where? In Northamptonshire. Which is how far from East London? Oh, I would say it's two hours, three hours. Okay. You know, but and rural, completely rural. You know, not, nothing for miles around it but fields and forests. And what is paying for this? Oh, our work, we're all at work by then. You know, okay. I'm, I'm 19 in 77. Wiggy will be 17. Bob will be 20. So we're all at work. Um and uh, we kind of went to the studio and never really came home. After after uh, going back and forth there a few times, the, the people who ran it were really great for us because they they gave us confidence. You know, that week I must have written a dozen songs while we were there. And we did stay up all night and we did well, why, why did the people give you confidence? Well, because our parents were like, you know, we might as well have been uh, collecting stamps. <laughs> as far as my parents were concerned, it was a hobby. And I should get a proper job, you know. Okay, but, so at this point, you had the office job, office boy down at the docks. Yeah. How long did you do oh, that? Oh, well, no, the office, it was in the center of London, in the city of London. It oh, wasn't okay. down the docks. It was that, it was that, I think maybe by then I was even a bank messenger. I think I'd moved up. I was a bank messenger. And you're still living at home. Yeah, what the crucial thing that's happened uh, since getting the first guitar and going to the studio is that my father's passed away. In 1976, when I was uh, 18 years that old. That must have really fucked you up. It did. Well, it kind of did, Bob. It was a long time coming. He had lung cancer. But a as he died and I had to sort of get to grips with not being a kid anymore, punk happened. And punk became the sort of life raft that I sailed away from my childhood and that terrible period where, where my dad was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. It was almost like everything stopped in my life, just stopped while that was going on. And then it ended and there was punk was there and I was able to step onto that and, and sort of row away to the next part of my life. So I was very fortunate in that. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Okay, so you're working as, an, uh, as a bank messenger, and you're making music, and what's the next step? Next step is that we move all the guys in the band. We decide to move to the farm, to the, to the studio except a guy who has an apprenticeship at Fords. He decides to stay at Fords, which is understandable. And we live up in East Northamptonshire for uh, 18 months. And you do what for a living? Nothing. So you're living off what? Off the government's uh, unemployment benefit. Okay. Uh, which in those days was, was not, not, not a bad thing. A lot of people were on the dole. So the taxpayers kind of pay for my apprenticeship. That's why I don't mind paying my taxes. I think it's only fair to pay some back. Um, and, yeah, we had a great time up there. We were legendary in that town. Although and you obviously played live there. All the time, yeah. We had a residency at a, at a pub, Sunday afternoon residency, where local punk bands would come and play. And in that town, in that community, we were the punks. But we meant absolutely nothing outside of that community. 
but they were great people and they and we really had a it's very formative my old manager peter jenny used to say that i didn't go to university i went to riffraff that was the name of the band <laughs> uh, and that is indeed true okay couple of things did you go in the military at one point that's what happens next okay. the band breaks up why does the band break up uh well we had to move back to london and the drummer wanted to stay there and me and Wiggy wanted to go back. And so we got a couple of other guys in, but it wasn't the same. It just wasn't the same. And the venues we played in were disappearing. And a new breed of uh, pop stars was coming along who put style over content. And we'd always been content over style through punk rock. And in order to get gigs, you had to have a synthesizer and a funny haircut. And I've never had either of those. So I... Did, I our time had come and gone. And did you literally, literally give up the dream, say, you know, time passed me by, I didn't make it? I kind of joined the army to press the eject button on my previous existence. That was the aim of it. Now, if you join the army, theoretically you could get your ass shot off. Well, yes and no. Depends what you do. I mean, basically at the time, the only place you'd get your ass shot off uh, was in Northern Ireland. But... I told them I didn't want to go there, so they put me in an Irish regiment because the Irish regiments didn't go there because you don't want to take some guy off the streets of Derry and teach him how to shoot and then send him back to harass his neighbours. It's not a good idea. So I kind of mitigated against that. But the terrible thing is, Bob, that once you've driven one tank, you've driven them all, to be honest with you. so Well, let's start from the beginning. Did you drive a tank? Yeah, for a while. Really? Yeah. And you're saying... I just want to understand because, you know, I grew up in the era of the 60s when we were all anti-military. Yeah. It's hard to see it flip in front of my eyes now. But are you saying there was no room for growth, personal growth, or you're saying what? What, in the Army? Yes. Uh, no, there was there was a realization quite early on that this wasn't going to cure me of wanting to be a singer-songwriter. In fact, it made me want to write more songs. So uh, because we have a volunteer army, you, you can buy yourself out. So, At any time? Uh, well, it gets harder the more trained you are, but I bought myself out more or less at the end of basic training. So I'd barely driven a tank. And how long was basic training? Uh, all in all, it was about four months. Okay, I got to ask, though. You're in the Army. Can you relate to any of these people? Well, a lot of working-class lads like me who were nowhere to go. You know, in those days, if if you you know couldn't read and couldn't write but were physically fit, there was a job there for you. Now... You can't do that anymore. They're not, okay, they're not so you so buy anymore. yourself out of the army. The dream is rekindled, and you do what? I spend a year working out how to how to start doing gigs again solo with an electric guitar. Start writing songs in that in that uh, style, and playing anywhere anyone would have me for nothing. Just carrying a little a little practice amp. And then, did you have a day job at that time? I was very fortunate and I bumped into an old mate of mine from the basement record store in the hardware right. shop. He was running a record shop and he gave me some work. Okay, and you got to listen to the music too. I did, yeah. Okay, it, was, so you, it, it would interest you because it was an entire chain of records, record stores that sold only cutouts. Really? Yeah. There was a guy, had a big church in the For East For those End. people who don't know, back in the days of physical... When something was deleted from the catalog, when they weren't going to manufacture it anymore or they had overstock, they'd literally put a cut in the cover and they would sell it at a discount. And there were no royalties to the acts to boot. That's right. And so he had, and he, he hired me, the boss, because I was the only one who knew anything about punk. And he would take me to bankrupt record stores 
and asked me to value the punk stuff. Look at the punk stuff. Because wow. he knew the other stuff. He didn't know shit about punk. So I would have to go in. And one day I found one of our records, a Riff Raff record, which made, <laughs> me, made me laugh. But I'd get a lot of a lot of the stuff he had was white labels. You get boxes of white labels, and I would spend a lot of the time during the day in the shop while there were customers in the shop playing the white labels, trying to work out what they are, and writing on them what they are, and selling them for you know a quid or something. So it was it was good. The dangerous thing was going to the warehouse. You know, if you went to the warehouse where the re- records were kept, another thing from the days of physical, your listeners might not know how heavy records were. You, there was always a danger that there could be an avalanche of copies of all this and World War Two, the soundtrack. You could get buried under them because there were a lot of those in the warehouse. <laughs> do you remember that record? Yes, I do. Exactly. Okay, so, yeah, so that was, those you're... were the days. Those were my days in the bowels of the record industry. And right. all this entire chain run on, you know, the… What was the, the name? Uh, low Price Records. Run on nothing more than the detritus. He ran a whole, I think he had six shops, uh, run just on the detritus of the record industry. Well, I got to ask because that's the second word you used, which if you're an American… That would be evidence of higher education. You said, as you pronounce an in, inclement, we might say inclement here, and you said detritus. Yeah. Would these be words come up casually in the UK, or are you separate from the average working man? Oh no, I'm a, I'm a wordsmith, Bob. So I, I do have a you know fabulous collection of archaic words because I need them to rhyme with things. But I was trying to I was trying to um, talk by saying detritus. I was trying to. Uh, Suggest that these songs, these records weren't rubbish. I got some, I got some great white labels. No, at no, home. no. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, usage is not the issue. It's just you don't get the average musician using those particular terms. Anyway, you're playing and you're slinging the cutouts, and what happens after that? I start to. Um, oh, the guy I work with, who's also a musician, he's a bass player in a jazz funk band, Steve Goldstein. He buys a. Porter Studio, which is like a, a little recording deck that you can make. Well, those a, people don't know. There are four tracks on a cassette, usually two in each direction. And I don't know if TIAC was the first one. Yeah, there was, you know. Was, yeah. yeah. And they used all four tracks in one direction. So it's kind of like recording in GarageBand today, but on a primitive level. Very primitive. But he bought this. He was so excited about it. And he wanted to, to test it out. So he invited me to come and make some demos at his mum's flat where he lived. And I was totally up for this because I was writing loads of these solo songs. So I went along and demoed my songs and I sent them to the Melody Maker, which was a weekly newspaper. Uh, one of four we had music papers in the UK. So it was Melody Maker, NME Sounds in? Did Record Mirror. Okay. Um, and the they had a page called Playback where they reviewed demo tapes. And a guy named Adam Sweeting gave mine a fabulous review. Absolutely did you think it was as good as his review? I had no idea, mate. But I can tell you that when my then girlfriend, who worked in the in the West End, so got the newspapers a day early, and we got them in the suburb, the, the music papers, read it to me over the phone, I almost wept. <laughs> I tell you why, because it was the first intimation I got that I might actually be able to do this job and it might work. It really was like a, a validation the like of which no reviewers ever had the same. In fact, just I'm tearing up a little bit now just thinking about it. That moment, it was, it was I just closed the shop, so it must have been around six. The sun was setting, so the shop was full of beautiful light. And it was almost like, you know what? This might actually happen. It might actually happen. So it was, um, 
it had the, my phone number on the bottom uh, of the review, and I was phoned by a guy who worked for Chapel Music Publishers, a guy named uh, Jeff Chegwin. He invited me to come and make some demos. Nobody else there was particularly interested, but he gave me a day in their demo studio with their engineer. We recorded a dozen songs. And um, around the same time, I had a residency in a rather sort of rough spit and sawdust joint called The Tunnel in South East London, a pub. And uh, I, was, I was doing pretty well there. But I started sending this, uh, the, the original demo tape that I'd made on the Port Studio, I'd sent it out to record companies but not got any. Anywhere, and I started going to record companies and going in reception. And I'd get a few names and try and ask to see someone. I didn't know anybody. And I went on one day. I went to uh, Charisma Records. I was looking for a guy named Peter Jenner. Okay, I mean, I know Peter Jenner, original mm. manager of Pink Floyd. Mm. Certainly, you're a manager. Did you know who he was at that point? I met. I got his name from a guy who painted backdrops for The Clash, who I knew. Okay. And, and when I said I was looking for a man, manager who was political and like a father figure, he said, oh, I know a bloke like that, Peter Jenner. <laughs> That's so, who he is. Yeah, exactly. And it was in my career. Um, and But at the time, he was A&Ring for Charisma. So I went there with my demo and I asked for him at reception. I was sitting there and I was not really getting any, looked like I wasn't going to get in, same as everywhere else. When someone put their head around the corner and said to me, are you the guy who's come to tune in the video? <laughs> Now, at the time, I was working with Wiggy. Right. Sort of part-time. Wiggy was doing audio-visual presentations for companies. And not many companies. This was 1982, maybe, 1983. Not many companies had video machines. So we would take a video recorder with us. And while Wiggy was doing the warm-up, I'd crawl under the telly and tune in their TV to this video machine. So although I wasn't the person who had come to tune in the video, I was capable of tuning the video. So without a moment's thought, I said, yeah, I am. So she said, great, come this way. Took me into the recording, into the record company, crawled under their telly, tuned in the video. I think they were watching Peter Gabriel, who was on the first edition. So of the you, you actually did do yeah, the for show? Sure, for sure. It wasn't a complete blag. Right. I'd done it. So I don't feel I don't feel guilty about lying because I did do it. Right. All right. Um, let's get that straight. Um, and then I said, I said to... Um, we were all standing around watching. I said to this woman, is Peter Jenner about? She said, yeah, it's him over there. So I went over and laid my tape on him. And uh, bless him, he came to see me at the tunnel. Okay, did he play it while you were no, there? No, Okay. But he came to see me at the tunnel. And uh, he he later said uh, that uh, the, when he came to the tunnel, there was an electric atmosphere in the room while I was on stage. He spoke to a woman at the bar, and she said I, I, was, inc I was brilliant. And um, when I finished, because he was late, he'd, he'd gone, there's two tunnels under the river, he'd gone, he'd gone through the wrong one. So he was, in typical Pete style, he was late. So he didn't see the gig, he just saw the end of it. But he, he, he said to me, we must do something, however trivial, that was his line to me as he left, because he left straight away. What he didn't know was just before he'd arrived, there'd been a fight. And the reason for the electric atmosphere was I was trying to hold the room, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Stop it breaking out again. The woman he spoke to at the bar was my then girlfriend. <laughs> so... And amongst all this, we kind of, we kind of, and only got sacked. He got sacked by Charisma after he put the record out. Uh, uh, he put the record out and he just gave me 25 and said, see if you can get any radio plays on that. I'm like, I thought this you're supposed to do this. He said, get out. Go, go to the BBC. So I went to the BBC 
And I left some copies. I left a copy for John Peel. Right, famous DJ. Uh, most famous DJ. And uh, the nighttime DJ who, who had the ability to break bands and give you sessions. I left it there. And that night I was in Hyde Park, which is the other end of Oxford Street from Broadcasting House, playing uh, football with some mates. And afterwards we were having a few beers and we were listening to the BBC, the programme before Peel, which is um, Kid Jensen. And Peel came in to talk about what was on his show. And he said to Kid Jensen, I would do anything for a mushroom biryani, which is a form of a curry. So a light went on in my head. So I went down, I walked down the back of Oxford Street, bought a curry, bought a biryani, went to Broadcasting House and said to the concierge, curry for Mr. Peel. They rang him. He come down. He physically come down to take the curry off me. So I was able to say to him, my name's Billy Bragg. I left a record for you today. Life's a right, Spy versus Spy. It'd be great if you could have a listen to it. He's like, fine, sure. Took the biryani. I tuned in that night. Not only did he play the record, he said... Thanks very much for the biryani, Billy. I would have played it anyway. And it was the beginning of a, of a I'd like to think, of a real friendship between myself and, and the great man. Okay. So now you have your start. Is it a relatively, you know, it's hard to do on the radio talk about graphs and angles. Mm, is it mm. steady going up or is it ups and downs? It's about ups and downs to start with. Um, because particularly because Charisma, the record label, uh, is, is taken over just after my record comes out on, on the utility label the record label is taken over by virgin so everything goes sideways including my record but uh, a guy named andy mcdonald um ran a label with one called leslie simmons and together they rescued my record and re-released it later that year and by the time we get to the new year it's number one in the independent charts which was a big deal in those days how do you think it got there well partly because of i was really really working hard doing gigs peel was playing it, it Put, he put New England in his festive 50, in the top five, I think, his festive 50. Um, Andy and uh, um, Godis were, were, were doing a, a good job with it. He was, a, he was a good promotion man. Him and Leslie did a really great job on it. And Pete Jenner, you know, was old hand. So it was like a collaboration. But well, everybody put their effort in. Yeah, my, my willingness to do as many gigs as they threw at me and to go, and literally, I, I mean, it literally was um, out on the road with an amp in one hand, a guitar in the other and a pack on my back on trains because I didn't drive then. And my agent would just put, set me up with um, support acts for, for bigger bands and I would just try and steal their audience. So by the time we got to Christmas, I was doing my own headliners. Okay, that record is successful. What's the next step? America. America. I get a shout in the, in the uh, August 1984, do I want to come to the United States of America and open for Air Kind of Bunnymen? their first American tour. Uh, so I do. So I get, I call Wiggy and say, Wiggy, this is it, mate. I'm going to tour America for, for a month. I may never do this again. You've got to come with me. You've got to come with me. This is what we dreamed about doing. Come on, let's do this. So I'll pay for it. I'll pay for the, you know, I'll pay you to do it. Come and roadie for me, play a couple of songs, get on the back of the bus with the bunny men. And that's what we did. We went coast to coast, north to south. It was just amazing. And, to do it with Wiggy, it really was for me. It was the the sort of culmination of that exactly sort of the word dream. I was thinking. Exactly, culmination. You know, we okay. went, we went, we got to we got to Los Angeles at the end of the tour. The Bunnymen went on. We were there for a couple of days. We rented a car, drove to the end of Sunset Boulevard, end of Route sixty six, and walked down to paddle in the Pacific Ocean and had a, a moment 
like our sort of 16-year-old selves kind of saw us there or we saw them and we, we came off the... We all got very emotional in weeks. The sun was going down. And we saw as we came off the beach an English pub, which was too good. So we went to go and have a pint to celebrate and they wouldn't let us in because we didn't have ID. <laughs> <laughs> totally killed it. We're like, you don't have to have ID in an English pub. No, no ID, no... Okay, so, at what point do you make a deal with Electra? Oh, that comes shortly thereafter. Pete, because um, I go back to America about three times in the following year, and Pete uh, gets me to deal with Electra on Taxman, I think. It's okay. Taxman, so 80, 85, 86. Okay, so in this period, we will call it your heyday. Yeah. Do you achieve your goals? Yeah, I do. I meet lots of very interesting women. I have very interesting conversations with them. With no clothes on. That was one of my goals. I'm not ashamed to well, say Wait, 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 wait. So you're not a closer, you said? No, no, no. Without any clothes on, Bob. I'm trying to put it in a nice way. One of the reasons why I wanted to be in a band was was to impress girls. Right. So, you know, that kind of... That well, kind that of, worked once you're on stage. We know that's a established formula. But one has to ask, I mean, you're a very verbal guy. Was your act working before you had some level of fame on the stage? Yeah, it was. Okay. It was it was working, but the the um, the guitar and the English accent really kind of helped. Okay, any of these women you have contact with today? Yeah, I do quite a few of them actually. I like to think I've remained friends with 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 quite a few of them. You know, it's what you do when you're in your twenties. You know, that was my my kind of period of heightened sexual activity. What happened to be on the road? So it, it had a had a a double. Edge sword to him because I, I was learning a lot as I was traveling as well. You know, it wasn't just me in one particular area. It was a, it was a, a, a great time to be uh, out on the road. And at this point, are you touring solo mostly? Yeah, completely, yeah. Okay. And then you ultimately have a backpack amplifier? No, no, no. I don't ultimately have that. Pete Jenner dreams that up as a, a, uh, a way of uh, getting people's attention. It's a complete pain in the ass because it weighs a ton. It feeds back, and it's the most of the weight is across your diaphragm. It's like a backpack, so you can't really get a lung full of air. I complained about it mercilessly. It gave me a bad back, but Jenna, damn him, said at the time that yeah, but people will remember this, Bill, and your comment there, right? Exactly. That annoyingly proves him right. Okay, so the downturn in turn, you know, everyone's got a relatively brief window where they are the center of attention. Mm. Now, would you say the moment passes, or you would say the internet comes and decimates? The no, scene? no. The moment the moment passes, basically, my my uh, my height of that would be uh, working uh, with in the UK with the Labour Party around Red Wedge and the miners' strike. That that very partic- uh, that very political uh, uh, opposition to Margaret Thatcher and her policies, and in the in the US to Ronald Reagan. Um, and that was kind of, that's, that's what defines me for a lot of people still. And I'm cool with that. I don't mind being called a political songwriter, although I write more love songs than I write political songs. My problem is being dismissed as a political songwriter. People thinking okay. they, they, they okay. know what is I it, do. You know? did, you wake, uh, did you grow up in a political household? No, not really, no. So how did you become uh, you know, inspired to speak out on your political views? It's all down to the inspiration of one person. I'll never forget her name. It was Margaret Thatcher. I'm, okay, of, I'm of my time. If you look, if you look at my first couple of albums, the politics is personal. 
just because you're better than me doesn't mean I'm lazy. Tax man, I'm writing songs called... That's a message we need more today than ever. Yeah, exactly. But by tax man, I'm writing There Is Power in the Union. I'm writing songs called Ideology. What has happened is the minor strike has happened. And for my generation, the minor strike was a very... Why don't you expand upon that for those people? In, in 1984, the uh, conservative government provoked the National Union mine workers into a, a, a year-long strike that ultimately uh, led to the not just the defeat of miners, but the defeat of organised labour in my country. And it was a, a destructive... Uh, um, both destructive of unions, but also destructive of communities and spirit. It broke the working class spirit in my country. And so, uh, you know, having grown up listening to all those political singer-songwriters in the 1960s when the strike happened, I thought, okay, well, this is where I get to find out if music can change the world. So I did everything I could to use the, the talent that I had and the, the platform that I had to make the case for uh, not just sort of organised labour, but for a compassionate society, which is what Thatcher was opposed to. Did you to. Uh, run up against internal pressure not to do that? Yeah, of course. Uh, the the um, One of Thatcher's ministers used to complain to the BBC if they put me on air. You know, he's a guy named Norman Tebbit complained. And how much, once again, you're in a different marketplace than America, and we're very ethnocentric and self uh obsessed how much exposure do you get in that era of the minor strike quite a bit quite a bit really because um we got remember we got four weekly music papers um and during the strike um uh, everybody was talking about it it was not something you could avoid so um young people were galvanized by opposition to Thatcher in the way they've been galvanised by opposition to Trump and opposition to Brexit. So to be a young person and to be making culture for young people, I, you know, I wasn't alone in the way that I'm well, kind of... Were you a, political before this or just this issue struck you in such a way I was, that I got a big statement? I was, I was personally political, Bob. You know, my, my politics were broadly, you know, anti-racist. Um, I'll be honest, before the minor strike, I didn't have much grasp of uh, sexism. It was that experience that introduced me to to those issues. But I've been politicised by Rock Against Racism. So that's where my politics kind of came from. Um, but the ideological politics, so I started, the minor strike caused me to define myself as a socialist rather than just a, someone who was in favour of good things. And I started trying to you know, bring that in. And for a lot of us, it, 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 was, it was definitive. Okay, we're in a you know very tumultuous globe at this point in time. Yeah, there's been a lot of rightward movement, although recently a little bit of a pushback to left. Do you have hope for society at large? Yeah, of course. As I say, <clears throat> I describe myself as a socialist, and, and unless you can see that the glass is half full, you can't really be a socialist because you have to believe that if the majority of people have a say, that the things will work for the better. You've got to be able to wake up in the morning and think that. Broadly speaking, humanity leans towards a much more compassionate society, um, and you know, I think we live in time. We live in a time when there's like a war on empathy coming down from on high. You know, anyone who expresses any sort of you know respect for people outside their own racial or cultural or ethnic group is sort of dismissed as virtue signalling or political correctness. These people who use those terms are trying to police. The, the, um, the limits of, of social change by their 
dismissive language, and we have to, you know, we have to take them on as best we can. Well, war on empathy—that's a good uh, way to put it. So, what is really going on with Brexit? You know, prior to this being published, I'm sure there'll be other yeah. movement. But yeah. give us the insight into how this happened. Brexit is a manifestation of the inability of the neoliberal economic model to deal with change. And it's not isolated. I think the election um, here in the United States of America in uh, uh, 2016 was also, um, the election of Donald Trump was also a result of the other candidate, Hillary Clinton, being unable to offer any real change, economic change that will help ordinary working people. She couldn't do that. She was just offering more of the same. And people, if, if you've um, not benefited from the economic model, then the, 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 the impulse to protect that economic model by voting to remain in the European Union, forget it. You know, you've made my life chaos. I'm going to make your life chaos now. And I think that's the lesson from Trump and Brexit is that unless ordinary people are offered uh, meaningful change, they are willing to vote for the kind of, you know, damn the lot of you chaos that we see with Brexit and with Trump. Okay, so now that the election or the Brexit election is essentially three years old, um, there's been a lot of talk about people who just, and a lot of working class people who literally voted against their interests because there were plants in their societies that were funded by European Union. Um, they talk about a nationalism that people mm. missed, a national identity, believing mm. in the UK. Mm. To what degree is that a factor? Well, you know, I'm a socialist, and um, as a result of that, Bob, I, I, I know there are many different types of socialism. It's not just one type. You know, you have democratic socialists here in the United States of America, the social democracy. It's the same with nationalism. You know, in my country, we have the British National Party who are led by a man who denies the veracity of the Holocaust, and the Scottish National Party who are more left-wing than the Democrats and the Labour Party. So, you know... Nationalism is not always a negative form. Civic nationalism, loving your country and wanting it to be better, is not always na uh, negative. But what's going on, I think, both with Trump and with uh, Brexit, is an attempt to return to the way things were before women, people of colour and the LGBTQI community okay. made their inroads. How much of it is that and how much of it is what you stated earlier, the lack of economic opportunity? Well, that... The, the, the one is a reaction to the other. You know, the two the big slogans from Trump and Brexit were make America great again and take back control. It's not like a, a moving forward idea where we're all going to move together. We're going to go back to how things were before all these uppity people got their their place in, in society. It's a, it's a you know, a, almost a nostalgia trip. And in my country, it's underscored with... Uh, I, imperial nostalgia, and I fear in your country it's it's um, it's run through with a nostalgia for Jim Crow. I'm sorry to say. Um, now you can you can put that down to nationalism if you like. There is a nationalist element in there, but um, nationalism isn't always negative. But what is ne clearly is negative is people who don't feel that they have. Um, a place in society anymore. You know, some of the uh, Brexit people say that they don't feel that Britain is their country anymore. Now, I have some empathy for that because I felt that way during the Thatcher years. So I'm not willing to dismiss them all as being racist, you know. 
not not everyone who voted for Brexit is a racist, but every racist definitely voted Brexit. I tell you that. <laughs> but the point being, you know, these are people who are don't feel their voices heard anymore, and Brexit was their opportunity to be heard. And I think there's an element of that within the within the Trump vote as well. And the question then becomes, how do we accommodate those people? Okay, so how do we? Well, I think we we have to give them the thing that seems to be lacking to me in their lives and listen to what they say, is a sense of some agency over their, their environment. And one of the reasons for that, I think, in fact, the prime reason for that, I think, is that the lack of accountability in a voting system in your country and my country that doesn't um, make everyone's vote count. If we lived in countries that had proportional voting systems where every vote uh, results in representation, we might be able to get to grips with some of these issues. I mean, what's been happening just recently in my country with members of parliament splitting from the two main parties is the stress being put on a system that is unable to uh, accommodate meaningful change. Well, let's stuck. go back just for a second. You w Go a little deeper. Proportional voting meaning? Proportional voting meaning that, that the members of Congress will proportionally reflect the number of votes counted. Okay. In, their, in their election or in their viewpoints expressed? In their, in their election, in the number of votes counted. In, in my country, uh, we have a system called first-past-the-post. So if there's, there's three of us, let's say there's three of us in the election and I get the most votes, I win, uh, even if I don't get the majority. You know, if I get, um, let's say I get 40%, and the two other candidates get 30% each, I win, and what happens to the 60% of the votes that are against me? They go in the trash. That's, you know, you keep doing that for 20, 30 years, those people who go in the trash every time are going to get angry. Well, I live in a rural constituency, we call them our, our uh, parliamentary constituencies. I live in a rural community where the Conservative Party have been uh, the MP since 1886. 1886? Yeah, and where I live in East London, where I grew up rather, Labour has been the Member of Parliament there since the borough was created when my father was a child in 1920-something. So neither, I mean, I'm a Labour supporter, but I recognise... Okay, just talk about the constituency you live in now. Is there any opportunity for Labour or a third no. party? No, the, the second party uh, even. Previous elections, I've had to campaign for the only party, the party that comes second, even though I don't support them. I've had to encourage people to vote for them in order to defeat the Tories and to stop the Tories winning at Westminster. It didn't work. Um, but in a fair voting system, uh, 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 system, our votes will be reflected. You know, there will be a threshold. Parties that got more than 5% would get some kind of representation. They do have it. I mean, most European uh, societies have it. It's not a um, solve all your problems, but it does ensure that everyone's votes get Okay, that's, get that, that's talking about government. What about economics in the fact with, you know, a lot of the economy, certainly in America, is driven by technology. And there aren't enough jobs, never mind well-paying jobs for people. Mm. Well, how do we address that? Really easy, Bob. Green New Deal. You know, the New Deal that, that Franklin Roosevelt used in the 1930s to re-engage re American workers, greening the American economy would have the same job. Because although, uh, yes, technology will be important, you will physically have to uh, change the way that, you know, every house is insulated. You will physically have to change the way that that uh, 
automobiles work. You will physically have to change the way power is generated. These are all labor intensive. Well, uh, right. Well, those would cause uh, employment for a period of time, just like the Alaskan oil rush of the 70s. But it does not speak to the billionaires who ultimately control these large corporations and wield their power to the detriment of the working class and middle class. Well, we're back to the A word again, Bob, accountability. You know, I think this – actually, I've, I've just been proofreading a, a polemical uh, pamphlet. I've written a 15,000-word pamphlet about accountability uh, because I, I believe very, very strongly that uh, – it's going to be published later this year. I believe very, very strongly that um, our obsession with uh, uh, free speech as the definition of freedom is to the detriment of other dimensions of freedom that are equally important, and they are equality, the right of everybody to express their opinion, more importantly, though, accountability, because it's accountability that gives the individual agency over those corporations that you're talking about. So I'm in my in my book. I'm arguing that equality and accountability give be given equal prominence and equal respect that we give to free well, speech. Well, let's say you know there are there are certainly bad actors in corporate world, but there is a spectrum. So for those people who are paying those corporations that are paying their taxes but still eliminating jobs, what's the accountability there? Well, the, the accountability there is that the corporations have to be responsible. So that the profits, some of the, the profits that they have, have to go into the communities where they work to create space and create a, um, a sustainable model of growth that helps those communities in some way. If everyone, you know, if maybe we go into a four-day working week or something like that. Um, because the real big problem is that the globalization of the economy has made it possible for for um, an extractive model of capitalism that allows a corporation to make its money in one country and then pay taxes somewhere else. That is, if they pay them at all. If they pay them at all. And unfortunately, the only way to deal with that is to have some kind of global deal. And again, unfortunately, voters tend to be shying away from that kind of international collective action that the European Well, as I say, Union, you know, globalization is here to stay. And it's just like in America, no one wants to pay $4,000 for a flat screen if it was manufactured in America, but there hasn't been a good trickle-down or understanding for those people left behind. Trickle-down doesn't really, really work, Bob. As the, I say, economy, that's what I mentioned there. The economy works not by entrepreneurs making loads of money and trickling it down. The economy works by you and I and every other average Joe and Jill going out every day and buying stuff. That's right. how the economy of course. That's what the New Deal was about. The New Deal was about putting money into the pockets of ordinary American workers so they could buy automobiles in America, so they could buy fridges, so they could buy houses. This if, is you what don't, people, if you don't have these people at the bottom spending their money, you have, that's when the economy well, collapses. Well, that, that's one of the things that bothers me. You have all these corporate titans. It's all based on consumer spending. Mm. That's, they didn't make the money in a vacuum. No, no. So the question is then how do you get that model to be sustainable? How do you get it to be more accountable? And I believe you do that by giving the consumer, the individual, greater agency over the process. So that involves a form of regulatory democracy, more regulations, not less regulations. Well, in America, and I agree with you wholly, uh, the right wing has done an excellent job of demonizing the word regulation. When, of course, no one wants to live in a building that collapses, etc. But... You know, maybe there's change now, just like with Nancy Pelosi, they demonized yeah. her yeah. and, they, you know, it turned 180. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. 
I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Brexit. Now, the hard Brexit is what, March 23rd? Uh, 29th. 29th? Yeah, I mean, that's driven by deregulation as well, I'll just add. Right. It's driven by the people behind that who are pushing hardest for it, exactly those kind of people, extractive capitalists, who are trying to get out of the European Union because the European Union is now starting to pass laws, which you'll know about copyright and such issues that are, have international uh, implications for corporations, not just uh, uh, manufacturing corporations, but people like Facebook and, and Google. Okay, so... How do you predict this will play out, Brexit? Well, Brexit, Bob, mate, it's like trying to say who's going to win the World Series in 10 years' time. It's everything you say you think will happen doesn't happen or something weirder happens. It's really what Brexit has done. It has totally fractured the idea of left-right politics completely. So you can't predict anymore the way people are going to respond to to uh, issues in the way that you could before. Brexit is is like a, a fault line that runs through our, our politics. And it it's in in some ways it's a bit it's a it's a bit like Trumpism in that way. 
You know, it's split families and it's split. Uh, I mean, I know people who don't talk to their parents anymore because their parents voted Brexit. It's it's impossible to predict. Uh, likely, what is likely to happen? I think it's likely that we, will, the British government, will have to ask the European Union to postpone, kick the ball down the field. The field, yeah. There's a there's a, a, a thing called Article Fifty, which is the process that we're in at the moment. Uh, that could be extended. Uh, what I would like to see is um, an independent review of it. A lot of people at home want there to be a referendum, another referendum. Bob, that referendum was the most divisive day in British post-war history. The most divisive day. And you want to do it again? Come on. You know, it would just be, it makes winners and losers. What we need is a consensus. So um, the Irish recently convened uh, a, uh, a people's forum to decide the issue of abortion. They put people... Um, ordinary citizens elected like a jury, I think there was a hundred of them, and they uh, took evidence from experts. No politicians were allowed to talk to them. They took evidence from experts and submissions from the general public. They uh, deliberated for months uh, in a hotel every weekend. It was all um, broadcast online so people could see the deliberations, and they came up with recommendations which the Irish government then ratified and put to a vote, and the vote of the Irish people was the same as the vote of, of the public forum, which is more or less 65% in favour of abortion and 35% against. Now, what that did was, A, it, it involved everybody in the country in a debate, it went on for a period of time, and the conclusion was consensual. Everybody could say that everybody's voice had been heard, whereas the referendum on one day... Uh, on on one vote and one outcome has not resolved an issue that has divided British politics well, for a about, long time. What about, you know, so, uh, the issue of all the misinformation Yeah, the, the original Brexit vote? How do we, Would this process eliminate that? Yes, because, because we would then have to uh, put those questions to the test. Before, Brexit was an abstract. Now, this close, we're starting to see the lie of the land. So, yeah. But, I mean, the, the fake news thing is also part of the accountability agenda, you know, the loss of accountability anymore. I mean, um, and it's not just that um, that the neoliberals don't want to accept facts. They don't want to accept being challenged. One of my real problems with the, the so-called intellectual dark web, these freedom of speech warriors, is that they simply will not countenance a challenge. It's not free speech they want, it's free reign. They want to be able to say whatever they want and have no comeback. And that's the difference, and this is the key difference between liberty and freedom. Liberty, the idea that you can say whatever you want to whoever you want, whenever you want, and, and you know, not be held accountable for it. If that was the definition of freedom alone, then your president will be the, the the paragon of freedom because that's exactly what he does. But it's not the definition of freedom. It's actually what he's doing is an abuse of his freedom. He's, he's um, you know, using his uh, privilege uh, in order to make those points. And you need equality. Everybody's right to, to express their point of view. And then on top of that, you need accountability, the ability, you know, the your ability as an individual to hold... Uh, people to account, but also your willingness to be accountable yourself. It's reciprocal as well as empowering. 
And these things are lacking. This is the case I'm trying to make in this uh, this pamphlet, The Three Dimensions of Freedom. Just to be clear, so you're against this political correctness? I don't think, I don't believe political correctness exists, Bob. It doesn't exist. You know, it's uh, it's a projection of the powerless or, uh, powerlessness of people. You know, if you look at the people who are, are most angry about um, political correctness, they tend to be academics. And what they're... Uh, pushing back against is people bringing in different uh, metrics with which to deal with subjects. I think what the academics are afraid of is that the, um, the standards that they were raised with that have allowed them access to uh, uh, places of privilege, if the metrics are changed, they will no longer be able to just walk through those doors that the rest of us are kept out of. They are defending their own privilege, you know. There is no such thing as political correctness, and yet your president was elected after saying that he thought political correctness was the thing that was the biggest thing that threatened America today. Okay, let's switch in gears a little bit. Where does this leave you, Billy Bragg? Oh, it leaves me with, on a, with a platform. That's what this job has always given me, a platform. You know, bottom line, Bob, I think I'm a communicator. So you're 61 in a change universe from when you started primarily because technology means of communication. What do you envision going forward, the 20 or 30 years hopefully you have left on this planet? Cool. Oh, let's hope. Um, well, I'm, I'm hoping that... Um, this is personally for your career. Personally for my career. If I carried on doing what I'm doing now, which is more or less what I was doing in the 20th century, I'd be happy. I mean, I feel immensely privileged, Bob. I've been coming to America for... 35 years, and people are still interested in what I'm doing to the extent I've sold three nights out at the Troubadour, and I've got other shows like this lined up. Uh, you know, and that's down to a number of things. You know, my management gave me good advice and I took it. My agent, uh, you know, Steve Martin, has been with me all the time, and you know, he's been, he has a great vision for what I try and do. And, and my uh, sort of urge to try and communicate, try and make sense of the way the world is, um, as, as still motivates me. You know, it's, to, it's just that um, I think what I, what I, what's different now is that there are other ways, there are other platforms. So to sit down and write a book, it kind of gets, uh, you know, sort of after 35 years, you need a break from touring around in a van. That's why I went on the Kayama cruise as much as anything, you know. 35 years driving around, America and a, and a, a people carry. I'm, I'm ready for... Okay, but also getting your message out in a Tower of Babel society where it's harder for any voice to be heard, does that, uh, is that a weight on your shoulders? Not mine, no, because I, I'm fortunate in that I got an audience together in the, in the days of college radio when the music industry was stratified. There were people at the top who were making huge amounts of money playing stadiums. There were people at the bottom who were going to open mics. A lot of us were kind of in the middle, you know, making a living, never going to trouble the top of the charts, never going to play the stadiums, but could go out there and play the circuit and, and follow, you know, it's a very 20th century thing. I have a son who's in a band now. Uh, he's 25 years old. There is no middle ground anymore. You either busted through and are gone gangbusters or you're, you're playing for a pittance somewhere. That sustainable middle middle of the road where record label lets you make free albums to see how they work out, that model is absolutely shot. And I'm sorry about that because although um, I don't 
necessarily want there to be another clash or another punk rock. I just wish every 19-year-old could feel like I felt when I saw the clash and then go out and be able to make a living on their own creativity. That's what's missing. You know, all of the new pop stars that are coming through in the UK tend to have been privately educated, which means in my country means they're not working-class kids like me and almost everybody else in British rock was in the, in the 20th century. And that's my real concern. If... Um, you know, the ability to have a career in music or any creative industry just becomes the preserve of the, the upper middle class, then we will really lose, lose something important in the, in the, the experience of, of life for, for, for our young people. You've been listening to Billy Bragg on the Bob Lefsetz podcast. We could literally go on for hours both through his catalog <laughs> and through politics, but we don't want to weary either the audience or Billy himself out. Billy, it's been wonderful to have you here. Thank you very much for having me, Bob. It's been very, very interesting. Okay. A lot of stuff that we touched, a lot of stuff that we haven't touched, but you've certainly been very stimulating. Question, you know, I'm a big believer that one person can impact society. You know, we're seeing that with AOC in America changing the debate and musicians used to be the people who impacted society most. Not right now, no. but we can hope it happens again. Well, the thing that's happened, if I can just finish off, Bob, is the thing about AOC is she is organized. The key is if you want to change the world, you can't just sing about it. You've got to get organized. That's the key thing about AOC. And for all the, the work I do, in the end, in my experience, only the audience only the audience really can change the world by going out there collectively and working together. And AOC is a really good example of someone who's a, 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 an ex expression of the collective will of her people and hopefully of the American people. Let's just go back. The book that you're writing, what are your plans for that? That will be coming out in May, uh, maybe in, I think in August in the United States of America. It's only a, it's like a pamphlet. It's 15,000 words. It's an essay, really, that's just making the point that uh, accountability ultimately is what's missing in uh, this will be today. sold or given away it'll be for sold. free no it'll be sold it's by Faber and Faber they're okay. British, British uh, publishers they publish my skiffle book uh, they're doing a series of them it's their 90th anniversary and they're doing a series of them and they've asked me to write the first one who, do you remember who the other people are uh, they're mostly musicians they're mostly people working in the creative and industries. will you be promoting it in I will to indeed Faber yes okay till next time you're listening to Billy Bragg on the Bob Left Sets podcast Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. 
even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm -hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.